Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today potentially was a significant day in the U.S. stock market. It started off this morning just like a typical day. We've had a string of new 52-week highs, and in fact, for the Dow Jones, uh, NASDAQ 100, it hasn't just been new 52-week highs, it's been new all-time record highs. The Dow's high that it set this morning was 37,562.83. And, you know, initially, the markets shrugged off some bad news. They didn't really care. The markets were going up. Before the bell, we got earnings out of Federal Express. And Federal Express opened up down about 10% or so, and it ended up closing the day down 12%. But the 10% decline should have cast a negative shadow on on the markets. It's It's an important stock, kind of a bellwether of what's going on in the economy. Because so much of the U.S. economy, unfortunately, is comprised of consumption. And most of the stuff that we're consuming is shipped, either through Federal Express, UPS, the post office. Think about all the online commerce. Everything that you buy on Amazon, on Walmart, all that stuff is shipped. And FedEx had a pretty big miss. They missed on the top line. They missed on the bottom line. And in fact, year over year, there was a decline, an actual decline in their revenues. Now, I'm sure that over the last year, FedEx has raised its prices. I mean, everybody's raised their prices. Uh, and, but despite that, they're, they're actually doing less in nominal sales. Uh, than they did before. And, and so this should, you know, throw cold, cold water on this, uh, this parade that the economy is in great shape because the fact that a lot less stuff is getting shipped is an indication that maybe the consumer is running out of gas, right? He's tapped out. He's leveraged to the max. He has all this credit card debt. Um, people are starting to have to pay their student loans again that people haven't paid. You know, I was listening to um, a clip, just came up. For some reason, this thing came up 
uh, for me and YouTube, but it was a Dave Ramsey clip. You know, I remember back in the day, Dave, Dave Ramsey said some pretty friggin' negative things about me. This was back in 2007 uh, because somebody had read my book, uh, Crash Proof, and was wanting to sell out of the stock market back then. And, and, and you know, so she called up Dave Ramsey and said, hey, you know, my dad was read this book, Peter Schiff, and he says, you know, the market's going to crash and he should get out. And Dave Ramsey was like, no way, this isn't going to happen. You know, and he specifically cited like General uh, Motors as like a stock that would never go down or something like that. I mean, this was right before uh, the 2008 crash. So he kind of said I was a kook. I was the son of a kook. But, you know, there, there are a lot of things that Dave Ramsey says that I agree with. I mean, he, he, he didn't get my criticism of the bubble economy. But, you know, he gives out a lot of good advice on personal responsibility um, you know, savings and debt, you know, you know, so he, he's a prudent guy. But this uh, woman had called or a guy had called up and, you know, talking about all the problems that they were having financially, even though they had a joint income of about $360,000 a year, they were still living paycheck to paycheck. And the wife had about $250,000 of student debt. I think she was an anesthesiologist, so at least she's got a good job. Uh, you know, she didn't rack up that debt for a liberal arts degree. But he pointed out that during this recent moratorium on student loans, when they didn't have to pay their student loans, they used that money to... Uh, you know, build like a, a barn or something on their property. They spent like a hundred grand building a barn or something, but they only did that because they used the money that they otherwise would have spent on repaying their student loans. And I'm sure this has been a typical uh, situation where all the Americans that didn't have to pay their student loans, they just used that money. They've been spending that money on other things. Well, to the extent that they're now paying, making payments on these student loans, well, they have to stop spending money on other things. And so maybe that's why FedEx is not shipping as much stuff is because the people are now paying their student loans back instead of buying stuff on Amazon that, 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 um, that, needs, to, uh, that needs to be shipped. Um, so... It's, it's clear that that was a negative for, it should have been, but the markets didn't care, right? The stock market just shrugged off that news. I mean, the Dow transports were obviously down because FedEx is a big part of that. But the other indexes were, 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 were going up despite this news. And then we got more bad news that the markets shrugged off in the form of a really bad treasury bond auction. Even though you've had this big rally in the bond market, um, this auction was very poorly received by investors. And that should have hurt the stock market, but, but it didn't. In fact, it didn't even hurt the bond market. The bond market rallied. Normally, you get the kind of news like this, that there was a very sloppy auction with a big tail. There wasn't a lot of demand. You would expect the bond market to get hit bond market went up anyway. Uh, so it might you know, be an indication that there's something else going on here, that the bonds are still being bid. I mean, maybe there was some sense that this stock market dump was coming because that's exactly what happened late in the day after making a new all-time record high. The Dow Jones finished down 475 points on the day, and that's 1.27%. Bigger losses in the NASDAQ. No, actually, the NASDAQ was only down 1.3%, so about the same. It was the Russell 2000 that had been the star. Even though it hadn't hit a new uh, all-time record high, it was you know making more uh, headway at, into 52-week highs. The Russell 2000 was down almost 2%, 1.9% on the day. But what's more significant is that all of these indexes, the, the, the Dow Jones industrials, although there's not that many industrials left there, but the Dow Jones, the S&P, the Russell 2000, the NASDAQ, NASDAQ 100, these indexes 
made new 52-week highs, or in some cases, new all-time record highs. But not only did they close negative on the day, they closed well below the low from the previous day. And I've talked about these type of days. These are outside reversal days. It's when the range, you expand on the prior day's range by going above the high and below the low. If you close below the low after trading above the high, that is a, a reversal, an outside day. It's outside because you went outside the prior day's range. And it's a reversal because you started off higher and you went lower. And when these days are particularly significant is when there's been a big trend and you make a new high. So it's not just an insignificant day that happens to make take out a high in the low of the previous day. It does it following a string of highs. The market was going higher day after day after day after day. Relentless string of gains. Kind of really, you know, for December, this was very rare that you would have this many days. I forget how many. But all these consecutive up days uh, in, uh, in the market. And then all of a sudden, you get this reversal where the market just collapses. The sellers came out in droves and there were no buyers. And so not only did we close below the prior day's low, we closed well below the prior day's low, and we closed on the low of the day. And so that potentially is a very ominous technical sign that we've seen a top. Whether it's a short-term top or a longer-term top, it's hard to say. I mean, it could just be the beginning of a correction, right? Not necessarily a new bear market that where you see the markets down 20%. But it could be the beginning of a, a correction. And I think that the reason that this is happening is because of all of the backtracking that is now finally caught up to the markets with respect to the Fed and its commitment to deliver these rate cuts. Because ever since Powell let the cat out of the bag and basically conceded that rates are coming down and they're coming down substantially, the markets you know, got ahead of it. And in fact, I think the mood on Wall Street was, you know, happy days are here again. We're going back to zero. We're going back to QE because that is the experience of the past. I mean, once the Fed starts cutting, they don't stop until they get to zero. I mean, that's what they've done in the past, right? And so why would anybody assume that the future is going to be any different? And in fact, considering how quickly Powell capitulated on rate cuts, because as I pointed out in an earlier podcast, in the November meeting, Powell said, we're not even thinking about rate cuts. And then in the December re- me- re- meeting, not only are they thinking about it, but they're plotting it on these dot plots. And that's all he talked about is cutting rates. So in, in, in one meeting, it was a complete pivot on rate cuts. Why shouldn't the markets expect that a similar pivot is coming with respect to quantitative easing? I mean, that's, you know, the big uh, enchilada that's coming is a return to QE. And why wouldn't they do that? They returned to QE before. Remember, when the Fed's balance sheet was like $4 trillion, they started shrinking it. They never even made it down to $3 trillion, and then they blew it up to $9 trillion. And so, you know, so now they started to shrink it. All right, it's below $8 trillion. But if they couldn't shrink the smaller balance sheet, it's even less likely that they can shrink this even larger balance sheet, especially in an election year. The odds would seem to favor that going into an election year, especially you know when Biden is as unpopular as he is, right? So he's going to need a lot of help to get reelected. And the Fed typically can be counted on to supply that help. And so the markets are getting in front of this. Obviously, it's an election year. They want to put a lip, lipstick on the pig of an economy that is Bidenomics. What can the Fed do? Well, let's start cutting rates. Let's go back to quantitative easing. 
let's goose the markets, let's get people excited and let them believe that the economy is getting better. And maybe they think, you know, who cares about these inflation numbers because we just got to make it through the election. You know, maybe the, the result of us returning to quantitative easing and cutting rates, maybe the impact that has on prices won't manifest itself until after the number of elections, and then it's too late, right? You can't take your, your vote back, right? If you actually get fooled into believing we have a good economy and you vote, you know, four more years for uh, Biden, and then after the election, you, you know, you find out the truth, right? All of a sudden, it, prices take off and it hits the fan. You can't get your vote back. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a final uh, buy, right? There's no returns, right? You vote and you're stuck with who you voted for. So all they have to do is delay the consequences until after this election. So the markets know this, they think this, and so they're buying, buying, buying. But then, you know, you've got all these Fed guys coming out and saying, you know, maybe we're not going to cut. We're not so sure, right? Uh, we we got to wait and see. We actually need more data. You know, we're not really talking about rate cuts. And, and since that's the only thing that the market's got going for it, it's all about liquidity. It's all about inflation. That's the story. It's an expensive market and the economy is weak. Uh, but it, 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 that's the hope that, 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 you know, the markets have been bid up on. And so I think finally uh, we started to see some surrender. So Unless the Fed wants to come to raise to the rescue of the market, you know, by now reversing the, you know, that, those uh, those calls, which it might do if the markets fall fall enough, right? Um, we could see some significant uh, downside in the markets, given you know how big this run has been, and how the only thing that's propped it up is is a bunch of a uh, bunch of hot air. Anyway, we got a quick commercial break. We'll be right back, so uh, don't go anywhere. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Now, gold also uh, got caught up in the late-day sell-off, but it didn't go down that much. Gold was only down maybe about 10 bucks on the day, and it still closed the day comfortably above 2000 I think we're at $2,030 an ounce. And silver sold off too, but it just got down about unchanged. You know, all day, even though gold was down five, six bucks, silver had some nice gains. It surrendered those gains in, in the big uh, late sell-off, but not really into ne negative territory. It kind of held unchanged. Now, the gold mining stocks, they got clobbered pretty good, you know, down a couple of percent, some of them two, three percent. But it wasn't a significant decline technically because none of the gold stocks really even took out yesterday's high. So it wasn't even an outside day for those stocks. It was just a typical uh, decline. And they hadn't been moving up. They hadn't been hitting new highs. So there was nothing significant about today's sell-off in, in gold mining stocks, the way there was some technical significance to uh, the sell-off in the overall stock market, tech stocks, uh, you know, all, all the uh, high-flying stocks uh, that had been making new highs uh, got, got hit. But, you know, there was also some bullish news on the liquidity front that came out from Japan. Remember, I spoke on this podcast about what happened on December 7th, right, the day that will live in infamy because it was the day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And I said there was another surprise, right, not as deadly as that one, but a surprise 
that the Bank of Japan came out and, and said, uh, we're going to have to start hiking rates. And, uh, you know, the yen had a huge rally on that. And I think they had some second thoughts. Maybe, you know, somebody took these governors out behind the, the, the barn and got their minds right because they came out was it yesterday, I think, and they said, nope, they're not hiking rates. They're going to stay negative. And so that uh, was a relief, I think, because, you know, the, the, the liquidity coming out of Japan has been a big part of the story. It's been a funding currency, uh, people borrowing in yen and then buying everything else, you know, buying stocks, buying U.S. treasuries. And Japan had indicated that they were going to shut that spigot. And I talked about how this could be a big deal. It would have been a big deal. But I guess they backed away from it. And I guess what they're claiming is they, they just want to make sure that they're out of the woods on deflation, right, which was always uh, a ruse. In fact, I was listening on CNBC, and uh, Andy Warsarkin uh, was talking about this, and he said, well, you know, I guess, you know, they really suffered a long bout of deflation, and I guess, you know, now that they finally got the inflation they wanted, they're happy about it, and they just want to you know, bask in, uh, you know, in the sunlight for a while. And they just want to make sure, uh, you know, that they're out of the woods on deflation, trying to defend keeping interest rates negative when your inflation is already three or 4% and, and rising. But, you know, this is a myth. Did Japan have, you know, years where the consumer prices went down? Yes. There were several years. I'm not even sure if they had two years in a row. But over a 10-year time period, they might have two or three years where prices were down a little. It's not like they were down 4 or 5%. I mean, maybe they dropped a half a percent, something like that. Um, so it's not like they've been stuck in deflation. Prices went up in Japan during the all lost decade years. And in fact, the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s, there were far more years where the consumer price index went up then it went down. And they didn't have even a single decade, I don't think, you know, where prices ended the decade lower than where they began. So how does that constitute, you know, mired in deflation, stuck in deflation? And again, how is having lower cost of living, how, how does that mean you're stuck? How are you mired in having your cost of living go down? I mean, that would be a good thing. Where, you know, you're stuck, where you're mired in something is when prices are going up. That's the problem. Everything I want to buy is getting more expensive and I can't afford it. That's the problem. My electric bill keeps going up. My rent keeps going up. You know, my, my, my grocery bill keeps going up. These are problems that people complain about. How many people complain? You know, God damn it, my landlord just reduced my rent. Man, I was really looking forward to my next rent increase, and that bastard went, and he actually cut my rent. Or, hey, I went to the gas station, and I was surprised at how cheap the gas was. God damn it. I was really looking forward to paying a higher price, and I got there, and I found out to my shock that they lowered their prices. I mean, how dare they do that to me? Who complains about food or health care or any of their bills going down? Nobody. When your bills go down, you are liberated. So to say that they were stuck in, in, in this deflation and they finally got out of it, like this is great news for them. So Ross Sorkin is like, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, after so many years of having to suffer the horrors of, you know, having the cost of living go down, they're now so excited. Believe me, the Japanese people are not excited about inflation. <laughs> they would prefer not to have inflation. They would prefer to have their cost of living go down, but they're stuck with the cost of living going up. Why? Not because it's good for them, but because the government is broke. That's the reason that the Bank of Japan is backing off of the rate hikes is because they did the numbers and they saw what that means for the government and what it's going to cost in additional payments on its national debt. And so they backed off. Well, I mean, that's the same thing 
that the Fed is going to do. They're going to back off. I mean, I, I, I think they're going back to QE as early as the fourth quarter of next year because that's when their bailout expires that they did in March of this year. It's March of next year. And that's when all these banks are supposedly going to repay the loans and take all that underwater collateral back on their balance sheets. Well, there's no way they're going to do that. Well, the Fed is going to have to do QE in order to relieve them of, of that burden. And, and so you know, if the Bank of Japan is you know, doing a 180, and it didn't take them long. It was like a week, and they've all of a sudden you know, reversed. They, it's like they tested the waters. They, they set out a trial balloon. And it, and it got shot down, right? <laughs> and so, okay, I guess we can't. I guess we can't hike rates. We got to stay uh, at, at at negative. And we'll see. Maybe the Fed did the same thing by sending out these minions to kind of push back on the narrative uh, that happy days are here again, and we're going to start cutting rates. And you know, maybe it's going to you know be a lead balloon if the markets really start to fall because they were going up. And had the Fed not pushed back. I think gold would already be at new highs. I mean, that might have been one of the motivating factors of the damage control was to keep the price of gold from really breaking out and to keep the dollar from really breaking down because the big breakdown in the dollar would really undercut the ability of the Fed uh, to, to cut rates because that would exacerbate the dollar's decline. And a weak dollar is going to be pushing up uh, oil prices. And, you know, we also got some other bad news. Maybe this is weighing on the market, too, um, with respect to what's happening in the Middle East and the fact that there's, you know, some uh, problems going on uh, that has uh, resulted in ships that were sending cargo uh, through that area. And now they're diverting the cargo uh, down below Africa, on the Horn of Africa, and now you have a, a, a much longer trade route in order to ship goods. Uh, and that is going to increase the cost of shipping those goods and increase the amount of uh, fuel that is going to be required to complete the journeys because the ships have a much longer way to travel. So not only does that mean it's going to take longer for the cargo to get to its destination, but it's going to be more expensive to get it there. And it's going to increase the demand for fuel because the ships now have a further difference, uh, a further distance to travel. And so this is also going to be, uh, you know, pushing up energy prices. We've seen a pretty big move up in the last few days in crude oil prices. In fact, oil prices that were below $70 a barrel are now back at around $74. $74. I think Brent crude got back above 80 today. There was a bit of a decline late in the day. You know, with oil, oil was positive about a dollar earlier in the day and then sold off. So I think it was above $75 a barrel uh, before we got, you know, the big sell-off where kind of everything got caught up. In fact, one of the only things that didn't go down, really, is, is Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has been rallying. There was a lot more talk today about the uh, ETFs. Now they're talking about early January when everybody expects uh, the ETFs to be approved. Now, even though Bitcoin's been, been strong, it hasn't made a new high for this move, right? Bitcoin is, as I'm recording this, uh, this podcast, Bitcoin is 43,600 and change. So it hasn't made a new high. And that, I think, indicates that, you know, we're running into a lot of resistance on the buy the rumor trade with respect to, uh, to these ETFs. You know, the only reason that these Wall Street firms want to create these ETFs is because they think they can make money selling them. It's not like some type of endorsement of uh, Bitcoin as an investment. They're, they're just trying to get in on this and they think, hey, you know, we can make some money here, you know, you know, giving the public what the public wants or what they perceive the public wants. You think, I think Wall Street is overestimating just how much demand there's actually going to be 
for a, a Bitcoin ETF. Everybody is overestimating. You know, I saw Michael Saylor was on t television again. I mean, they give him a huge platform on CNBC because that makes their advertisers happy because the crypto is still the number one advertisers on CNBC. And that's why it gets such biased coverage uh, from, that, from that network. But I saw this interview and he is talking about this Bitcoin ETF. And he said it's the most significant thing in at least 30 years to happen on Wall Street. According to Michael Saylor, this is the, the biggest event since uh, the introduction of uh, the, um, the index fund, the S&P index fund, which is a gross overstatement of the significance. I think it's a non-event. I think it's historically insignificant. But clearly, he's talking his book, and uh, nobody ever calls him out. Anyway, I'm going to continue uh, with this uh, on the other side of this break. So stick around. We'll be right back. All right, so Michael Saylor was touting the new uh, Bitcoin ETFs as this huge innovation that's going to you know, go down in history as a significant milestone on, you know, for Wall Street. Uh, but you know, he's just trying to hype this thing up. And one of the things that he, that he said in this interview, why this is so significant, is because there's all this money out there that has been waiting to buy. They've wanted to buy Bitcoin, but they didn't have a, a regulated avenue to do it. Right? They didn't have a vehicle that was you know, compliant or approved. They needed something on the New York Stock Exchange. Well, what does he think MicroStrategy is? I mean, MicroStrategy is basically a Bitcoin ETF in disguise. I mean, sure, there's a software business in there somewhere. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the value of the stock is all Bitcoin. And so you've had that avenue and there's been plenty of other avenues. There's all kinds of Bitcoin stocks out there and there are uh, ETFs of Bitcoin futures. I mean, they've got all the regulatory protections. I mean, so clearly anybody who was dead set on buying Bitcoin because uh, they really wanted it. Well, they, they, there was nothing stopping them from buying any one of the number of existing ETFs. So this is not a game changer at all. I mean, if you want to buy uh, Bitcoin and be your own custodian, which is what you're supposed to be, right? Not, not your uh, you know, passcode or not, not your keys, not your coins, whatever it is, whatever the mantra is. But the real Bitcoin hodlers, they don't want any of this crap. They don't want an ETF. They want to own their own tokens. They want to self-custody. So the people who are buying an ETF, I mean, they're not real Bitcoin buyers. They're, they're just gambling, right? If they really were true believers, they would just go out and buy Bitcoin. Now, it's possible that some people, you know, have an IRA or something and, and they would prefer, you know, not to buy an ETF or something. They'd rather just buy the coins, but it's difficult in an IRA. So they settle uh, for this. But I don't think there's a new army of would-be institutional buyers who have passed on MicroStrategy, who have passed on other crypto stocks, who have passed on uh, uh, ETFs of futures contracts, who have passed on spot ETFs in other markets that they easily have access to. You know, institutional investors can trade in foreign markets. I mean, they're not limited to the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. So if they were that determined to get a Bitcoin ETF, well, I mean, they're not gonna stop at our border Right, these are sophisticated investors. Uh, they have the whole world uh, to to invest in. So this is just a myth that he's pumping up. But I thought it was interesting because whoever it was that was interviewing him, then she said to him, "Well, you know, once this ETF is there, what is that going to do to MicroStrategy? Right? Because people are buying MicroStrategy. Are they just going to stop buying MicroStrategy and and buy this new <laughs> ETF instead?" And he was like, no, no, no. And he was trying to explain after he just sang the praises of the Bitcoin ETF, why Michael's strategy was even better. <laughs> and his reason for that was that they could borrow money and buy even more Bitcoin. And so that's the reason that you should buy a micro strategy as opposed to an ETF, because it's all levered up, that it's a leverage bet, <laughs> that it's even more speculative than speculating on the ETF, which of course, you know, she didn't really push back on that. Uh, but it really shows you, uh, you know, the hypocrisy there. And this is all just hype. 
Michael Saylor needs the price of Bitcoin to go up. And um, CNBC provides him with a platform to constantly talk his book with pie-in-the-sky forecasts. Now, at least he didn't put a price target on it anymore. He stopped doing that because she asked him, well, how high is the price of Bitcoin going to go? And he wouldn't say. <laughs> he just said it's going higher. Uh, but he wouldn't say uh, how much higher. Uh, maybe he's learned his lesson there. Uh, but Bitcoin didn't get caught up in the, the sell-off. But I think it's coming. I, I don't think that Bitcoin is going to avoid uh, what's going on in, in other risk assets, especially um, if, if this sell-off continues. I think maybe Bitcoin will be the last to go, right, if it goes in a few days or next week. But I think it's going to get hit the hardest. Uh, so look out below. But anyway, though, I want to devote the rest of the podcast to talking uh, a little politics and a little history. As you may or may not be aware, the um, Colorado Supreme Court has just declared Donald Trump ineligible to run for president, that his name will not be on the ballot in their state. And now, first of all, the chances of Trump winning Colorado were, were pretty slim anyway, right? So it's like you can't come to a party that, you know, you, you, know, you really wouldn't, weren't going to be invited to anyway, right? It's, I don't think it's that big a deal for Trump. But I think it gives him a, another great issue to run on. If a state that he was going to lose on anyway keeps him off the ballot, that's just more ammunition to win the swing states where he's still on the ballot. You know, unless, obviously, other states follow suit. Um, but this is all politics. The state is Democrat, and the Supreme Court is obviously a bunch of Democrats. And so they've concocted a fake reason to keep um, Trump off their ballot. And they are looking at the 14th Amendment. And they're saying the 14th Amendment prohibits Donald Trump from seeking office, which is BS. First of all, the 14th Amendment uh, was enacted in the aftermath of the Civil War, right? They got the 13th Amendment that freed the slaves, and then they got this 14th Amendment. And there is one section, a third section of this amendment, that has to do with disqualifications for holding office. And what... uh, the, uh, the states who voted to ratify this amendment were concerned about is they didn't want people who formerly held federal office, you know, or, and had sworn oaths to defend and protect the Constitution, who then violated those oaths and joined the Confederacy and made war against the United States. They actually either they fought, you know, they, in, in the Confederate Army, or they did something uh, to aid in the Confederate cause. They were, they were combatants, right? They, they, were, they were in an armed conflict against the United States. And so they said, look, we don't want any of those guys now holding federal office. They've already proven that they're traitors. They violated their oath of office. And so they can't run. That's what the amendment dealt with. All the people that the 13th Amendment prohibited from running for office or holding office are I've been dead for like 150 years. Donald Trump does not fall into that category. The the 14th Amendment was not written to prevent Donald Trump from being president or having any other uh, federal office. And the other part about it is, which makes it more insane, is who says that he's guilty of rebellion? Or insurrection. I mean, he's been charged with a bunch of things, right? All these trumped up charges. One thing he hasn't been charged with is leading a rebellion or insurrection. That's not one of the charges that, that he's been indicted for. But again, even if he was indicted, even if he was charged, which he hasn't been, but even if he was, you still need to be convicted. They still need to prove that you made rebellion. How can the Supreme Court, without any evidence, without any criminal charges, any trials, 
just unilaterally say, oh, the president is guilty of rebellion. He's guilty of insurrection. And we're going to disqualify him from holding office. We're not even going to allow our citizens to cast a vote. Because whatever Trump did, I mean, it's out there. The voters know it. You know, so the, the voters know about January 6th. They even know uh, the distorted way the media has framed it you know, as an insurrection, even though it's not. I mean, those guys, it was not like the Civil War. Nobody had a musket or, you know, a modern day equivalent. People didn't charge the White House with Molotov cocktails. The, the protesters on January 6th were unarmed. They had cell phones, right? They were taking selfies. They weren't firing shots. How are you going to have a rebellion? How are you going to have an insurrection with a cell phone? <laughs> it's impossible. The only people who were armed were the Capitol Police. The only person who was killed was one of the protesters who was shot in the back, <laughs> unarmed, by one of the Capitol Police. So this was not an attempted coup d'etat. It was not insurrection. It was not rebellion. It was not the Civil War. Donald Trump did not lead a civil war against the United States. There is nothing that he did that falls within this. But so this is pure politics, right? Just like the verdict I went over against Giuliani, you know, for $150 million, right? This, I mean, the judicial system, the media, it's all political. But I also wanted to talk a little bit, since I'm on the subject, about the idea that the people who joined the Confederacy, that they were doing anything wrong, that they had violated their oath of office, because I don't think they were wrong. I still believe that the North was in the wrong, not the South. These Southern states seceded from the Union. There is nothing in the Constitution, there was nothing in the Constitution then, and there's nothing in the Constitution now that says you can't do that. Right? The, the, the states voluntarily came together to form the union. And there was never anything written in the Constitution that said a state couldn't leave. And in fact, even after the Civil War, when they passed these new amendments, they didn't pass an amendment that said, you know, you can't leave the union, right? The, it's a roach motel. You check in. You ain't checking out. Uh, so that, that's never happened. In fact, if you go back and, and, and think about it rationally, America became a nation because we seceded from uh, England, right? We, we were part of England, and we declared our independence. In fact, I'm going to read, I wrote down um, the, the, the very first sentence or paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. These are very famous words, but it really defines our national character and, and what we stand for, what we believe in as a people. And so the, the declaration begins, and of course, written by Thomas Jefferson, but here's how it starts. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the cause would imperil them to separation. So in other words, we have a right to dissolve the political binds that have bound us to another, in which case England. And we declared ourselves sovereign nation, a you know, collection of states. Well, if 13 colonies can declare themselves independent of England by, by right, by a God-given right, why can't an individual state declare its independence and dissolve the binds that connect it to the United States? They should be able to. There's no reason why they wouldn't be able to. I mean, everything about our natural history up until 1860 suggested that you could secede. And in fact, People might not know this, but there was a movement. The initial secession movement in this country wasn't the southern states. It was the northern states. 
See, we got into the War of 1812, and that war was very unpopular with the New England states. And in 1814, they actually convened a you know, convention, and they were going to secede over the war. They were going to leave the Union because of their objection. They considered it, and they ended up rejecting it. But they didn't reject it because they didn't think they had the right to do it. They just decided they didn't want to, right? Uh, but it wasn't like a question like, could they or could they not? Um, they thought they could. Now, there was another, uh, you know, like, tension. The next, you know, real uh, tension uh, was in, I wrote it down, um, 18, 18 um, what was it? 18, 1832. And this was with South Carolina. And the government was very upset at a tariff that had been passed that they, that they considered to be unconstitutional. And so they told Andrew Jackson, who was the president, you know, at the time, we're not going to pay this tariff. This, this, this is unconstitutional and just, you know, we're not going to enforce it. You're not getting any money. And Andy Jackson was like, well, no, you've got to pay this tax. You've got no right to just declare it unconstitutional. I mean, the Supreme Court would have to do that. You just can't unilaterally refuse to enforce a tax just because you think it's unconstitutional. And so there was a threat that Angie Jackson was going to send federal troops into South Carolina to force South Carolina to enforce this tax. But it never happened. And, you know, they, they, they ended up backing down and they, you know, they, they, they made some concessions. And so, you know, they never had this confrontation. But it was not about secession. And in fact, at that time, South Carolina didn't say, look, we're leaving the union because of this tax. They just said, we're not going to pay it. We're staying in the union. We just don't want to pay this unconstitutional tax. Right. But there was some threat of force. But that was the only real precedent up until 1860 that the government would do anything, you know, would use force against the state, even just, you know, for refusing to pay a tax that they thought was unconstitutional. So anyway, uh, after uh, Lincoln's elected um, in December of 1860, that's when South Carolina formally seceded from the Union. And following the secession of South Carolina, six more states seceded. So now you have seven states that secede, and they form the Confederacy. None of these guys think that they're traitors. They're, they're just exercising their rights to sever the ties that bound them to the United States. They're God-given rights, just like their forefathers severed the ties with the king in England, they were severing their ties with the United States. I mean, it's, it's hypocrisy to claim that we had a right to leave England, but now those same states don't have a right to leave the United States. Now, England didn't accept our rights, right? We told the king we're leaving, and the king said, no, you're not, and, you know, he sent his troops uh, to put down the rebellion, and we won. And we, we, we won our freedom. But the principle was, we thought we were just, that we had a right. If we had a disagreement with the king, we didn't like the way he was governing us, well, we could just leave. Well, why wouldn't the states have the same right? I mean, they would have more rights because the, uh, the, the colonies didn't voluntarily join England. They were already part of England. It was the king's land that we were occupying. The king was there forced. We were already his subjects. And we decided that we're leaving and we're taking all your property. With the, the states, the, all these separate colonies were independent. And they voted to surrender some of their sovereignty and join this union. And so the states would have even more right to secede from the union that they voluntarily joined, then would British subjects have the right to tell their sovereign, we're free and you're not our king anymore, right? So what King George did to us was probably more justified than what Lincoln did uh, to the state. So 
these the people that did this weren't bad. Now, obviously, you know, <laughs> the 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 people in the north who had just won that bloody war, you know, had a different opinion, and they didn't want these uh, leaders of that rebellion or people that participated in that rebellion to now hold uh, public office. But also another precedent too that people ignore. Oh, and by the way, too. Even though those states, right, I said that seven states seceded, the, the, Lincoln didn't do anything. It wasn't like the minute South Carolina left, there weren't troops there saying you can't leave. It wasn't until the Battle of Fort Sumter in April of uh, 1861, so after these seven states have already seceded, and, and then... The, the, the Confederacy attacked a northern fort, attacked Fort Sumter that happened to be on an island off, off of South Carolina. And we told Lincoln, hey, get your troops off of our land. We left your country. We are our own country right now. And you've got troops within our border. Get rid of them. And, 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 and then we attacked. And that's what started the war. So it's like, who knows had the South never attacked Fort Sumter, who knows what would have happened. Maybe they would have been allowed to leave. I don't know if, they, if it was more peaceful. Uh, but that's really what the provocation was uh, for the war. It wasn't the immediate secession of the states. It was the attack on Fort Sumter that was the catalyst that, that started the war. And then, of course, once the war started, I think another uh, five states left and joined the Confederacy. And then you had a total of 11 states that were in rebellion against the United States. But the other precedent, I think, uh, that was significant was what happened with Texas in 1836. Because Texas seceded from Mexico. They were part of Mexico. And they told Mexico, we're leaving. And then they joined the United States. So we were all in support of Mexico even, I mean, of Texas leaving Mexico and we welcomed them into our union, we didn't say, hey, you can't do that. You can't secede. You're, you know, you're part of Mexico. That's not fair to Mexico. You, you got to stay where you are. No, we were like, great, fine, come on in. So if we're going to support the right of Texas to secede from Mexico, it's complete hypocrisy to say that Texas can't now secede from the United States. Now, apparently, too, it's in the Texas <laughs> Constitution, or when they became a union, they reserved the right to leave. Back then, they said, look, we're going to join, but if we don't like it, you know, we're gone. And in fact, that's the way it should be. No state should be forced to be part of the union. Any state that wants to leave should be able to leave. I mean, if you're free, right? I mean, because it's tyranny to say, oh, no, you're stuck. You can't leave no matter how much you want to leave. Now, part of the problem, of course, now, how are you going to leave? What about all the debt? <laughs> you know, you, if the country breaks up, what happens to the national debt, right? Because that, that could be one way that the states could get out from under this debt is just leave. Look, we don't want any part of this debt anymore. We're out of here. Now, maybe the U.S. government could say, look, you can leave, but you got to take, you know, you got to take your share of the debt. But that won't even work because if you're a state, Let's say Texas were to, were to vote to secede and, you know, the, the, the state capitol just sends notice, you know, to Obama or, or Biden, rather, whoever's president. Hey, we voted. We're out of here. Right. I mean, everybody supports some kind of referendum in uh, in Puerto Rico. Does Puerto Rico want to be a state? Well, maybe Texas or maybe Florida. Maybe they don't want to be states anymore. Right. Well, they have a rec referendum and they vote. We're, we're out of here. Even if they agree to assume a portion of that debt, you know, yeah, we'll take, you know, three, three, three trillion of the, you know, of the 34 trillion in debt. Nothing stops Texas from just defaulting on that debt the minute they inherit it, because they really don't have an obligation. If Texas became its own country, and if I was, you know, the president of the country of Texas, and I started off with three or four trillion of debt <laughs> that I somehow got. Uh, as the price of my freedom, the first thing I would do is default on the debt. Yeah, hey, I'm not paying this. 
you know, what are you going to do? I'm a sovereign nation. Got a right to default. Meanwhile, you know, Texas doesn't have a printing press, so they, they don't have, they can't print the dollars. They would have to earn them. And so I would be like, screw this. This isn't our debt. I, I you know, we're, we're just going to default. Now, what would the U.S. government have to do? The U.S. government would have to guarantee the debt because if Texas left the union and then defaulted on the debt and then the U.S. government said, well, it's not our problem, that's Texas, the whole thing would collapse. Nobody would have any confidence in Treasury debt because then other states could do the same thing. So what would actually happen is the government would have to then honor the debt that Texas defaulted on, which is why nobody's going to leave, right? It's a giant debtor's prison now, the United States. It's even more important that the country not split up than in 18, <laughs> 1860, right? There's no way that anybody is going to leave because uh, of the taxes. The federal government needs these states to pay these taxes <laughs> because it needs to service the debt. Now, of course, it doesn't really need to. It could just print money and create hyperinflation. But it's really a giant debtor's prison, which is why it makes no sense to me, right, that Puerto Ricans would want to become a state, knowing what they're getting into, knowing that the minute they become a state, it's a roach motel. They can't go back. You can't turn back the clock. And you're inheriting your share of this enormous debt. <laughs> you know, why would you want to do that? Uh, when you don't have to, right? I can see if the United States was in a strong financial position and you wanted to join, but if you're talking about like the U.S. is like the Titanic, you know, why would you want to, you know, tether your boat to that ship and then go down with it? I would want to stay as far away from it as possible. Anyway, I just wanted to go over, uh, go over a little bit of that, of that history. But the bottom line was it's complete BS, for this court uh, to claim that Trump was in rebellion against the United States and therefore he is ineligible under the 14th Amendment. It shows you how political this process is. How could these justices, because they've also sworn oaths to uphold constitutions, they're supposed to be enforcing the law. This is not about the law. I mean, no judge could possibly read that amendment and think that it somehow summarily disqualifies Donald Trump, right? So it shows you that this is all a witch hunt, and that's what they're all doing. All the actions against Trump, none of them have any basis in law. It is just the mainstream trying to prevent Trump from running from office, prevent Trump from resuming office. You know, they, they underestimated him the first time. And now they're doing everything they can to prevent him from uh, returning to the White House. But again, almost everything the government does backfires, right? I say that all the time, that whatever their intent is, they pass a law, they achieve the opposite. So if they pass a bill to eliminate poverty, right, they create more poverty. That's just how government works. So it's backfiring. I think everything they're doing to try to stop Trump is simply making it easier for Trump to win because it's showing people that the establishment is against him. And people don't like that. You know, you're creating sympathy. You're making him a form of a martyr, right? And now people are rallying behind him because they see that this is a bunch of bullshit. And they can see the powers that be don't want him in office. Why? They perceive him a threat. Well, that must be a good thing for us. If the people we don't like the people who are abusing power are threatened by Trump and they don't want him to be president. Well, that's reason enough for me to vote for him, right? Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so Trump may be able to surf that wave all the way into a second term. Anyway, that is it for today's podcast. I am off to Connecticut tomorrow. I'm going to be back there uh, for the holidays. And then we're going to go skiing uh, with the family in Beaver Creek. So if anybody is out there uh, and you run into me on the chairlifts and you will be all bundled up, but you know, just like I, I saw a lot of, I ran into a lot of podcast uh, listeners uh, when I was in the British Virgin Islands. So maybe I'll run into some on the slopes. I'm not sure how many podcasts I'm going to do 
over the next three weeks. I mean, maybe I'll do one a week. I mean, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to be mainly on vacation. But certainly, if there's a major event that comes out, I'm going to want to talk about it, even if I am on vacation. So just keep a lookout for the, uh, uh, you know, the announcements of an upcoming uh, podcast. Uh, but I won't be doing them from my studio here. I'll either be doing them from my house or I'll be doing them from a, a hotel room. And if I don't do another one before uh, Christmas Day, which is pretty likely that I won't do one uh, prior to Christmas, then have a Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm sure I'll do another one before the New Year. So I'll have another opportunity to wish everybody a, a Happy New Year. But bye for now. And don't, don't forget, you know, get your gold at shiftgold.com. Uh, uh, you know, we're close to 2000. Uh, I think you want to be all in. Uh, before before the new year and you know take advantage of the dips that we've seen uh, in, in in some of the foreign stocks I mean they've had a nice rally but a little bit of a dip today the dollar I think is still on the verge of a big drop and so I would try to get fully positioned before the end of the year uh, because I think 2024 could end up being a very very big year for the euro Pacific strategy of foreign value and dividend paying stocks uh, inflation hedges, resource stocks, precious metals, everything that I've been advising people to buy uh, for a decade or more, I think now it's really going to start uh, paying off uh, in, a, in a big way. Anyway, again, bye for now and uh, Merry Christmas, everybody.